This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, November 23, 2021. I'm Caleb Brown. War is a matter for deliberation. In the United States, it's a matter for deliberative bodies like Congress. And yet in recent decades, we've seen a substantial transfer of the power to make war over to the executive branch with expensive and often disastrous consequences. Representative Jim McGovern of Massachusetts, a Democrat, and Representative Peter Meyer of Michigan, a Republican, hope to begin the process of clawing back those and other related authorities on behalf of the first branch of government where they belong. We spoke last week in the U.S. Capitol. No better place to start than uh, with James Madison, who said the no, there's no more wisdom to be found than in the part of the Constitution that reserves the power to make war to Congress. So where did everything go off the rails? Well, I think it, I think it went off the rails uh, because members of Congress of both parties allowed it to go off the rails. Um, they allowed presidents uh, to uh, usurp uh, congressional authority uh, when it comes to uh, issues of war and peace and other national security matters. And, uh, and so, uh, you know, it's up to Congress to reclaim that authority. This should be a front and center Republican issue. Uh, President Trump, it seems, has had awakened uh, an impulse to uh, get out of these wars and perhaps can curtail the presidential power to make war. How, how does your party, uh, Representative Meyer, stack up on uh, this core Article One issue? You know, it, it does not cut nearly as neatly as some might expect, um, even though it is a, a, a constitutional question. It's about balancing powers, which we like to pride ourselves, at least rhetorically, on the conservative side of the aisle around. Uh, but at the end of the day, I mean, during the, the Trump administration was really the first time that you had a president who was not reflexively um, hawkish. I, I, you know, think back to George Bush, you know, uh, Ronald Reagan, you know, maybe you have to go back towards the Eisenhower administration to have that, that vein of thought. But that doesn't mean that, it, that, it was, that you know, President Trump was well received within his own party. Uh, you, you still have members uh, who still were opposed under Donald Trump and are opposed in the post-Trump period. So uh, what is the, what are the mechanisms that need to change? here in order to for Congress to reclaim ultimately the power to make the decision about going to war? Well, we've introduced legislation to kind of statutorily um, <laughs> keep us in line when it comes to living up to our constitutional responsibilities. And um, because, again, uh, what happens is, and uh, my colleague just alluded to it, uh, is that uh, you know, sometimes when you have a president uh, of your own party in power, you don't want to make waves. Doesn't matter whether you're a Democrat or Republican. Uh, it just, that's the way it, it sometimes plays out. And so Democrats don't want to, you know, put any roadblocks in the way of Joe Biden. A lot of Republicans don't want to do that to Donald Trump. Uh, and so I think we need to protect ourselves by actually passing legislation to statutorily force us to do our job. Uh, I can remember President Obama uh, arguing that he had the full authority to drop bombs in a particular foreign country, but said he would ask Congress to approve or not approve some resolution on doing that. And that just seems totally backwards. And as you said, presidents of both parties, they want to have that authority. Uh, it's a tool in the toolkit for a president. So, you know, 
are, are Democrats broadly aligned in favor of reclaiming the war power, even though there is a president of their own party in the White House? Well, I, I think, um, as Peter mentioned, it's complicated uh, on the Republican side. It's complicated on the Democratic side. We have, um, you know, some Democrats that don't want to do anything right now because Joe Biden's in power. Um, and um, but having said that, I think this is the moment to do it. Right. Um, you know, Biden has said uh, uh, at least alluded to that he might be open to this discussion. So let's take him up on it and let's see whether we can get something done. Again, this is not a, the blame here is not on Republicans or Democrats it's on both of us. <laughs> and so it's up to both parties to kind of reclaim our authority. And in the long run, I think it will result uh, in us up upholding uh, our constitutional responsibilities. Um, what about repealing the 2001 AUMF? Is that that seems like the logic, a logical place to start the, the subsequent AUMFs? as they say, aren't really being used that much. And uh, people of both parties have said, well, we can get rid of these. But 2001 is the one that really authorized a lot of mischief that went on, for, has gone on for a very long time at great expense to the United States. So I view it, there's sort of two different elements when talk, you talk about AUMF repeal. One is ensuring that AUMFs are not being uh, utilized for something far beyond their original purpose, right? which you could argue on the 01, but then you have the zombie AUMF problem, which is they're just sitting there in the background and just clear the slate so somebody can't creatively reinterpret it. So 2002, 1991, 1957, if you want to go back to the 1819 and 1798, you know, all of that you can clear off and we'll have no operational distinction today. The 01 has obviously been extrapolated far beyond Al-Qaeda and associated forces to groups that didn't exist on 9-11, groups that are actively fighting Al-Qaeda when we're bombing them. You know, Yet that has an operational bearing. So I think, you know, I am of the mind that we replace the O1 with something that is far more narrowly tailored. And that frankly punts back the question of whether or not you're continuing it, not just to a sense of intrinsic momentum, but to affirmative congressional authorization. I think that's one of those shifts is from the burden being on Congress to tell the president no to the Congress having the president having to come to Congress and says, get me to yes. Yeah. So, so he's right. I mean, and um, and the deal is that, um, you know, these AUMFs have no sunset provisions. They go on forever um, and they get interpreted and reinterpreted and then re-re-reinterpreted. And so it's like, you know, um, and, and we find ourselves involved in military, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, conflicts. And we're told that they're justified by an AUMF that um, where, where that conflict or that scenario was never even envisioned. Look, I was here in Congress when we voted for the AUMF to authorize the use of military force in Afghanistan. Um, you know, I, I had, to be honest with you, I struggled with that um, uh, that vote uh, mightily at the time. But at the, at, the, at the time, I was reassured by the people and then the Bush administration that you know, this was really narrow, that we were only going to uh, seek out those who were responsible for 9-11. Well, obviously, you know, as we here we are sitting here in 2021, uh, that was not the case. Um, it was used for a number of things, interpreted very broadly. Had I known that back then, I probably would not have voted for it. Um, but, but again, I mean, the idea that we're using AUMFs that were voted on years ago to to justify, you know, military scenarios that we never even contemplated. Back then, I mean, I just there's something wrong with that. 
And and if I'm not mistaken, September 14th, 2001 uh, was the vote on uh, that AUMF, the 2001 AUMF. That was of an extremely emotional moment for the country. Mm-hmm. Broad powers were, as we learned later, delegated to the president of the United States. They, there is no sunset. And it, seems, it would seem logical that in uh, an emotional moment, you ought to have that sunset at least for the purposes of uh, everybody getting back to their rational minds and thinking, okay, you know, how long do we have to put up with this? If I mean, even even if it is justified initially. Well, where are we now? I mean, we're two decades right. on. You know, the Taliban control Afghanistan. Osama bin Laden is dead. There are groups that are far more virulent that we couldn't have imagined then. Uh, I mean, there's the question of authority, which is, I think, the most salient and, and appropriate to our purpose. But then there's also the question of, did that balance work? Like, what groups were actually sufficiently degraded by the authorities that were given to the executive and the operations that the executive then carried out? So, I mean, I, I think it's important to remember as well that there's a question of outcome. And in between that, I, I look back and ask how much better, how much more if, if the executive was forced to articulate just what they were do- going to do and then also demonstrate, you know, the outcome of whether or not the strategy they had outlaid to convince Congress to give them that authority in, and on a continual basis, if that would have produced a far better outcome because they would have been held to account, the questions would have been asked, and the answers would have had to have been articulated. Most of President Trump's vetoes were over Congress expressing displeasure with his actions related to arms transfers, to uh, exceeding his authority with respect to war powers. Um, What is the automatic mechanism that puts the onus back on Congress to either continue to allow a president to engage in certain activities or automatically ceases that activity uh, as a congressional matter? Well, you know, right now you can, if a president says, I'm going to sell weapons to someone. So, and actually we're, we're dealing with this right, or the, the Senate is going through this right now with um, some air to air missiles to Saudi Arabia. The only, the president does that or can do that, provided that both branches, both, sorry, both houses of uh, Congress don't in veto proof majorities, like decline. So the burden is solely on the Congress to get sufficient numbers and the president can you know, basically do what they want. I mean, that is a very hard level to do. And I believe it was. Hit. It's, it's actually easier to impeach and remove a president than it would be to get the majorities required uh, in order to stop the president from making war. Right. Yeah. And you're, and you're absolutely right. But let me let me just tell you a little secret um, uh, that a lot of people don't like to talk about up here. Members of Congress uh, don't like to take tough votes um, and um, on issues of war, on issues of arms sales or national security matters, sometimes they're tough votes. And so it's a lot easier to be on the sidelines and to like, say, well, I would have done this or I would have done that or, you know, I don't like the way the president's handling this or or cheer him on if he's if things are going well. Uh, but to, but to, to cast a vote, uh, you know, on a regular basis to do the kind of oversight that I think we think is our obligation to do, it puts people in an uncomfortable spot. I was also here when we voted on the Iraq war. Uh, I voted against that uh, authorization, but at the time of that vote, 
um, the public opinion polls were overwhelmingly in support of what President Bush was trying to do. Now, public opinion turned um, quickly. pretty quickly, um, and a lot of people who voted for it kind of wish they didn't vote for it. I mean, we had Democratic presidential candidates who were for it before they were against it. And I mean, we we had we all know that. But the point of the matter is that I think that has sensitized some members to say, look, if I don't need to go out there, it's a lot easier to be, you know, a, you know, a critic on the sidelines. And, um, and so, you know, th that's one of the challenges that we have to deal with. That we, cause people are going to have to take responsibility. In your proposal, what automates the process of ending a presidential overstep without explicit congressional assent to that, uh, step that the president may, may take? Well, slightly different depending on, on the category. But the, the first thing is that I think there's a recognition on both the, a little bit less so on the arms export, but on the war powers and emergency powers that the president does have some inherent, you know, fast response ability to deal with a rapidly developing situation. So we don't want to overly curtail that. Just like in the Constitution, the president has Article Two powers around, you know, self-defense that have been used to justify a lot of uh, periodic or one-off engagements. But after that point, right, if, if the War Powers Act is, has a 60-day clock, we curtail that down to 20. After a point, it has to be affirmed by the Congress if that is going to continue. And if it isn't on the war power side, that action is immediately ended. The funding is cut, and it is aggressive in doing so, far more aggressive than war powers on emergency powers. Uh, after that 30-day period, have the affirmation. Do you feel like there's a coalition that can get that over the line and a president who's willing to sign on to it? So, again, as I said, President Biden has indicated a willingness to, you know, to engage on this matter. It's up to us to try to figure out whether we can get the majorities to do this. Now, I, I chair the Rules Committee. Um, we've had a hearing already in the Rules Committee. We're going to do a, a hearing on this legislation uh, in, the, in, in the near future. But you know, my ranking Republican, Tom Cole from Oklahoma, is very interested in this topic. I have a lot of other very conservative Republicans on the Rules Committee who have expressed interest in supporting this. Now, um, and on the Democratic side, I've got a lot of support uh, from some of my colleagues. Now, there are what I would call more establishment um, uh, figures who I think are kind of reluctant to to get go down this road, uh, and we're going to have to convince them. But uh, this is not a Democratic or Republican issue. I mean, there are liberals and conservatives and moderates who who – who feel we need to do something like this. So um, I, I think we, we have some legislation. Um, the Senate has legislation. We're going to move it through the process, hopefully, next year. Um, we're going to have hearings. We're going to have thoughtful discussion. And uh, and I think it will be interesting because the people who will be speaking in favor of it, you know, are not going to be all Democrats or all Republicans or all one wing or this wing. It's You're going to see a very broad coalition. You both live in we're we're shifting gears here my apologies <laughs> if uh, if that this question would come as a surprise um you both live in states where cannabis is legal and you represent states where cannabis is legal nancy mace lives in a, a state where it is not legal and she would like nonetheless the federal government to essentially let states run the show with regard to uh cannabis prohibition this is broadly supported on the on the Democratic side, but on the Republican side, yeah, not so much, of course. And and it's uh, it, but there hasn't been a, I would say there's been a, a, a lack of leadership uh, up to now on 
that issue. Well, maybe John Boehner will come back because he's been strongly advocating <laughs> for them. Yeah, recently, Immediately but, after leaving Congress, I might add. Well, I think I think what, what Jim was saying about just I think the notion of establishment gets you know there's a lot of folks who give it way too much credit, but if you think of what might underpin that concept, it's that you just continue the status quo. You don't really want to change something, and the risk of changing it is a you take you are either take responsibility or given the blame if you change it and something goes wrong, right? If you just don't touch it, just leave it alone, let it go, let play it as lines, then you don't have an issue. And on both the war powers, uh, it's clearly, in my view, an unsustainable balance that needs to be changed. And I think a lot of thoughtful folks, when they learn about the details, um, say that actually makes a ton of sense. That seems to be addressing a lot of errant ways. On the uh, cannabis side, I mean, what is more conservative than the federalist approach of just saying, hey, let the states decide on this issue? We, we had that around, you know, well, at least since prohibition, we have broadly taken the view that we should be deferring down to states in those traditional police powers areas in things dealing with health. And, you know, I'm a strong believer in the states as, as test beds, as laboratories, as places to experiment. Uh, and that, that's probably a little bit poorly phrased given uh, cannabis and marijuana, but how we should get to that point, you know, we can't have the federal government be trying to force down areas where the states are pressing up and saying, it's okay, we got this. Yeah. And some people will say, well, you know, states are already doing their own thing, except we have federal laws that make uh, uh, banking almost impossible, mm-hmm. if not impossible. Now, I should tell you that on the rules committee, uh, Ed Perlmutter is my uh, is one of my, uh, my members here, and he's been the prime author of the uh, Safe banking uh, bill, and um, and so, and he's not giving up on that. So we, he, because on the rules committee we can do whatever we want to do. We've attached it to the national defense authorization bill, hoping that it will you know find its way to the president's desk that way. But um, but you you know I mean we got to get out of the way on things like that and allow states to do what they want to do. And um, it makes no sense for me to me. Uh, when I see, um, you know, businesses in my district where people are lined up to go into one of these stores and uh, they have to make all their purchases in cash. I mean, uh, I've had police officers say to me that it's just not a smart thing to do uh, because it's not safe. Yeah, it's not safe. So let, let's let, we, we, we can we can do this. We will get there. We will get there. My hope is it'll be sooner rather than later. Jim McGovern is a Democratic U.S. representative from Massachusetts. Peter Meyer is a Republican U.S. representative from Michigan. We spoke last week in the U.S. Capitol. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast pretty much anywhere. And follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.